0: Please be seated. You can turn your Bible to John 18. We'll look at verses 28 through 40 this morning. The text is also printed in the next page of the bulletin for you. John 18, 28 through 40. So we've been in John's Gospel for some time now. Getting toward the end of it. Might finish up uh, maybe early this fall. I don't know. (laughs) Um, John's Gospel is... Uh, selective he he says as much himself later in the gospel we haven 't looked at this passage yet, but uh, where he says that Jesus did many more things than these, and you couldn 't fill the heavens with books uh, <clears throat> written about all his good works but uh, but these have been written for a purpose so john John is selective in his writing of this gospel it 's a deliberately crafted record of the life and teachings of jesus it 's not exhaustive it 's got a purpose. And it's distinct from the other three gospel accounts. I think you can see that when you're sort of reading through them, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, called the synoptics. They all sort of share a lot in common. And then John uh, comes along, and it's, it's different. And you get a sense that John is focusing really on the theological significance of the life and teachings of Jesus. That Jesus is himself God the Son, that Jesus relates to and is one with God the Father, and that Jesus promises God the Holy Spirit. So Jesus reveals God. He reveals God to us. He reveals God to be triune. A lot of our Trinitarian doctrine as Christians comes from John's Gospel. So John's explicit purpose seems to be um, uh, the theological significance of who Jesus is and what he reveals to us about God, especially in his, in, uh, in his divinity, I think. So uh, John's explicit purpose for writing the Gospel he says in chapter 20, verse 31, is so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's John's reason for being, for, for writing this selective, uh, deliberately crafted record of Christ's life and uh, and works. So, <clears throat> but but John doesn't give us a theological discourse. It isn't like an essay about the nature of God or the divinity, it's... It's an actual record. It's a historical account. So John, John is writing theologically, he's writing uh, divinely about history. It's a, it's a historical account of the things Jesus said and did. And this is what makes it so uh, wonderfully significant to us, even theologically significant to us, with regard to our relationship with God. God the Son came into the world. He really did. He came into the world in a particular place. And at a specific time, and he engaged in relationships with real people, and he accomplished certain things. It's all a matter of historical record. And John thinks it's especially important to elaborate on Jesus' historical meeting with Pilate. You get sort of an expanded account here uh, compared to the other Gospels, an expanded account of Jesus' interactions with Pilate. Why? Why? I mean, it's, <clears throat> in, in one sense, it's just a political conversation between basically a homeless teacher, sort of a second career guy. He was in carpentry before, now he's trying teaching. He's a rabbi, homeless. And then on the other hand, a mid level Roman government administrator, and it ends up with a criminal execution. <clears throat> so, isn't this just some obscure, irrelevant bit of remote history? What does this meeting between two guys have to do with God? What does it have to do with our faith? What does it have to do with salvation? What does it have to do with eternal life? In other words, you know, the creeds that we recite, the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed, two of our great universal earliest professions of the essentials of our faith, what we think is, this is what every Christian believes. Why do they mention this meeting? Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate. Why do they mention Pilate? Why does John think this is important? Why, why does John think this has theological significance? Why should you care about this at all? What's so cosmically important about it? It's, it's the ultimate showdown between two types of human being. That's what it is. It's the ultimate showdown between, between two ways of being a human being. You've got the old way in Pilate and the new way in Jesus. It's the summary conflict of kings and kingdoms, and politics, and power between the kingdoms of this world and God's kingdom, the kingdom of God. It's the summary of the conflict. And the surprise outcome has overthrown the whole world for good. It's important. So we're going to look at Jesus meeting Pilate this morning. So let me pray, then we'll read the scripture. Father, we pray that you would Do that work that only you can do through your Holy Spirit, and that is to make your word come alive in our hearts in our minds, to make us come alive to your word. Illuminate us so that we might receive your word and be changed by it into the likeness of Christ our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? After he had said this, he went back outside of the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him, but you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, Not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Praise be to you, O Christ. So Jesus, at this point, has given himself into the hands of evil men. He's in the custody of uh, sort of the chief priests, the officers, the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders of Jerusalem, the Jews. The Jews have him in custody at the beginning of this passage. They're the ones who take him to Pilate and deliver him and hand him over, right? But Jesus has given himself into their hands. He knew everything that was coming. He told his disciples in advance. He went out to meet his betrayer, who he knew was going to betray him. He went with his captors willingly. He condescended to stay engaged with people who were sinning against him, and that's what he'll be doing the whole time until he dies and then beyond. He condescends to stay engaged with sinners who are abusing him and committing injustices against him. And now, Now, in our passage, now he's at sort of the the big boss at the final level. It's Pontius Pilate, the governor who's been delegated by Rome to oversee their Jewish holdings. So the Jewish religious leaders have delivered Jesus to Pilate, and they themselves refuse to go into Pilate's headquarters because the whole business might make them unclean. For whatever reason it is, it's basically cited that they wanted, They they didn't want to uh, become unclean by entering the governor's headquarters, which is incredibly ironic because they're manipulating the situation in order to have Jesus murdered. They talk about uncleanness. They're murdering someone. They, they're, they want to have him murdered in a way that suits their purposes. They don't just want him dead. According to their law, blasphemy, uh, the, the punishment for that is stoning to death. They don't have... They don't really even have the right to kill anyone under Roman rule, but they certainly don't have the right to crucify someone, which is a Roman execution, a Roman way of executing someone. But they, they don't just want him dead. They want him crucified. They want him hung up on the cross because, according to the Scriptures, a hanged man is cursed by God. A hanged man is cursed by God. And if they can get Jesus to be hanged, then they can solidify their place in the public eye if every eye sees God cursing Jesus up on a Roman cross. If everybody knows that Jesus is cursed by God, then it will solidify their place, the the Jewish religious leader's place in the public eye. So they're leveraging power. Uh, Can't talk about every every single interaction that happens here between the Jews and Pilate or between Pilate and Jesus. But what they're doing in this passage is leveraging power as the world understands it so well. They're leveraging power in order to get what they want and to keep their position, self-exaltation, in the system. It's a self-centered use of power, and that is diametrically opposed to love. Diametrically opposed to love. The God of love... Made us in his image for relationships of love with himself and with each other. All of our relationships are to be characterized by self giving love, but everything with humanity, uh, everything about our humanity went wrong when we traded love for power. We traded self gift for selfishness. We traded love for power. We, we ceased reflecting God's image through our self-gift, we corrupted it beyond recognition. We ceased reflecting God's image through our self-gift. We began to withhold ourselves from one another, and then we began to grab at just whatever pleased us, to consume it, to fill our desires, even if that means neglecting and using and abusing others along the way. So Henry Nowen has a great little book called In the Name of Jesus. He says, power offers an easy substitute for the hard task of love. It's an easy substitute. Uh, In fact, it's it's diametrically opposed. It's totally opposite. Power is just self-centeredness. How much can I get for myself? Whereas love is how much can I give myself to others to bless others? But we've all made that substitution. And the power grab that they're doing is exactly the same thing that the big boss does with Jesus. Pilate is trying to maintain sort of a delicate balance in a state of political turmoil. He's in Jerusalem because it's a Passover feast. Normally he wouldn't be there, but with all, all the Jews coming to Jerusalem for the Passover, you know, he just wants to be there in order to manage any potential out, outbreaks, any riots. This was normal. This happened every year. So Pilate comes, and he wants to maintain this balance. If he fails to keep things under control, well, it'll mean his job, at least. Maybe it'll mean his life. So he's in a tight spot. He's the instrument of Rome. Rome rules through fear. So he's the instrument to do that, to wield the sword against uprisings and to keep some semblance of order here. He's Rome's instrument for that. He also wants to keep people happy. It's a lot easier to manage them if they're sort of getting what they want. His relationship with the Jewish religious leaders is a terrible one. It's a transactional one where they're seeking to really denigrate. They're insulting each other in this interchange. They're insulting each other and they're they're using one another, trying to use one another to accomplish their own ideas. So, so Pilate's manipulative. He has no qualms about cruelty, about using cruelty, the application of it in his hunger for power. But he himself is driven by fear. He himself is driven by forces he actually can't control in a world where power means, ultimately, we're just biting and devouring one another. We're just using and abusing one another in order to get what I want. That's what the world's version of power is. It's a nightmare scenario. <clears throat> Geek out here just for a second. Anybody seen the movie, the Jet Li movie, The One? I know a couple of you have seen. Okay, I see some nodding heads. Good. The One. Sci-fi movie. The idea is that there's these parallel universes, like maybe even infinite parallel. I don't know how many parallel universes there are, but they can travel in between them, Right? And if you go to a parallel universe, and, uh, and if you kill your double there, because in each of these parallel universes there's the version of me who lives in this universe, and if I, if I go to that universe and I kill that person, it's really me, if I kill that person, then, then I grow in power. Actually, some sort of physical superhero-type power, or supervillain, really, in this case. So the villain figures this out. He goes and he kills all his doubles in every universe that he can get to. He's down to basically just one. and uh, So he becomes super-powered. He can basically do whatever he wants. He's super-fast, he's super-strong, and that means he can take whatever he wants by force. He could do whatever he wants. But in the end, the villain gets dumped in one of the parallel universes, which is basically hell. He gets dumped there, where all the people are savagely fighting one another, constantly and the closing scene, this camera sort of pans out, <clears throat> is the villain playing Kung Fu, king of the mountain, with the whole world coming up to challenge him for that top spot forever. That's a nightmare scenario. And that's basically world politics. It isn't always savage brutality. A lot of times it's way more subtle than that. But we're not above savage brutality, really. We're not above that. We don't always feel the terror and and complete insecurity of threats to our power, threats to our well-being. We don't always feel the terror of that. Sometimes we've really bought the lie that we're too strong to, to need to be afraid. But the whole thing is run on fear that ultimately that we won't get what we want. And that's what we want. We want to get what we want. Pilate is a perfect public representative. He's just like we are. He represents all kinds of people who are concerned about power, and that's, that's all of us. He'd like to imagine himself the master of his domain, but for all his maneuverings, he's fairly adept at it, he's gotten to a certain spot in the Roman government, but for all his maneuverings, He's still enslaved to fear and the illusion of power over and against other people. Self-centered power fails him. You see that. You see that here. Self-centered power fails Pilate because enter Jesus, calm, he's regally poised. I can almost imagine him saying to Pilate, Maybe you're wondering why I've arranged for this meeting. (laughs) Um, Because you see that as Jesus is on trial, maybe he's bound, standing before Pilate. Really, really, Pilate is the one that's on trial before Jesus. Pilate's way of being a human is being shown up for the sham that it is. Jesus is the true king with the real power who responds to Pilate's interrogation. All of these interrogations are meant to to basically scare Jesus. But he's responding to Pilate's interrogation with questions of his own, questions that expose Pilate, questions that stump Pilate, questions that frustrate Pilate. The charge against Jesus that the Jews would realize, you know, this is going to find the most traction with Rome. This is what they'll do. You know, they'll they'll respond to a charge like this by stringing Jesus up, hanging him up on a cross. The charge against Jesus that finds the best traction with Rome is the charge that he claimed to be king. It's treason against the emperor, basically. So Pilate asks, Are you? Are you the king of the Jews? S- simple yes or no question. Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord? Or did others say it to you about me? So as always, Jesus is engaging. He's entering into conflict. It's a very uncomfortable situation, I imagine, for me, at least, to be in. Uh, He's entering into conflict for the good of the other. Pilate doesn't really know what he's doing. He doesn't know the magnitude of this encounter. He doesn't understand the opportunity that's before him actually to embrace the true king who's coming into the world. He doesn't understand that. And Jesus calls him to reflect on it. Jesus condescends to engage with him and calls him to reflect on it. Are you the one that's calling me king? Is that, is that your profession? The pilot has no patience for irrelevant reflection like this. I'll be the one to ask the questions here. He says, he doesn't realize it's actually the most relevant question to all of us at any moment. Do you say that Jesus is king? That question is relevant to you, all of you, at any moment. Do you say that Jesus is king? Don't dismiss it as irrelevant. If you do say that Jesus is king, it it turns everything upside down. It overthrows our self-centered grab for power. It overthrows that. It holds forth an entirely new way of being a human in relationship to God, in relationship to other people. Through dependence on this king, things can be set back right. Our relationships can be characterized by love and not by this power hunger. Do you say that Jesus is king Or is that just something that you've heard others talk about? Pilate is too uncomfortable to sit with that question. He's a man of action. He's a man of politics. He's an important person. Let's get on with our day. Finish our business. My king. (laughs) You think I'm one of your own people? Am I a Jew? King? King? Even of the Jews? The Jews, your own people delivered you over to me. Come on. Get serious. What have you done? Why do they want you dead? Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting. That's what, that's what characterizes the kingdoms of this world. My servants would have been fighting, that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. Jesus is saying that what Pilate means by king, what you mean by king, Pilate, And what I mean by king are not the same thing at all. Not even close. If Jesus were just another king like all others, if he were a public representative of the old sinful version of humanity, he would exercise self-centered power and he would make his people kill other people or he would make his people die for him. He would sacrifice others in order to make a better life for himself, in order to save his own life. That's what he would do if he were king like all the other kings. He would sacrifice others. But Jesus is another kind of king with a kingdom and an authority unlike anything else you'll find in this world of sinful self-centeredness. He sacrifices himself in order to give life to others, in order to give true life, in order to give eternal life, To others. He sacrifices himself. So for Pilate, Jesus is just a problem to be removed from the picture, sort of a blip, an interruption to the day. So you are a king, he says. Am I catching him in his own words now? So you are a king. "Mm. You say king, but I'm not a king the way that you understand it, he says. You say king. For this purpose, I was born, and for this purpose, I've come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who's of the truth will hear my voice. He listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? Jesus says, I'm the king who's come from heaven. I've come into this world. I was born for this reason. My mission is to make God known for relationship. That's the truth that I'm testifying to with every ounce of my strength for my whole life. I'm making God known to people for a relationship, to make the true kingdom of heaven known in the world, and I'll be recognized as king by those who belong to me. The implication is, of course, that those who don't belong to Jesus will not recognize him, that actually they'll dismiss him or seek how they might dismiss him. They won't recognize his type of kingship. They won't recognize his power, the power of his love, the power of his self-gift. They won't recognize that. Pilate basically says, whatever. What is truth? I mean, he isn't waxing philosophical by asking, what is truth? Right? He's cutting off the conversation. He's dismissing Jesus' crazy talk as irrelevant to the conversation. Look, you're on trial here. I'm going to kill you or I'm not going to kill you. What do you... What are you talking about? Pilate sees the problem that needs to be addressed as a threat to his rule, as a threat to his idea of peace, keeping peace. Pilate will do whatever is necessary to suppress threats to this peace. He will manipulate and control through through fear and through the power of the sword. He will sacrifice others to maintain his position and to keep the peace. So his politics... Fail to address the real human problem here. His politics are the real problem here. His politics are the real problem, self centered use of power. Pilate's politics leave him stuck in an impossible place. He's in some kind of a moral dilemma. He admits that Jesus is not guilty. But he has to murder him anyway for the sake of keeping the peace, to make the world a better place, in order to maintain his illusion of power. He has to murder. That's counterfeit power. That's sham power. When you see power exercised like that in the world, you should recognize it for what it is. Pilate isn't just murdering any poor sap. He's killing God who came in the flesh. And that's the problem of our sin. That's the real human problem. That's how he's representative of us in our real problem. In order to get my way, in order to get what I want, I have to exalt myself over and against all others. I have to disregard the dignity of any other person. But really, ultimately, I have to kill God. I have to get him out of the way. I'd like to think that I don't really want to do that. I'd like to say my hands are clean, that I just have to do it. This is the way I've chosen for myself. It's the dilemma that I've brought upon myself in my self-centered humanity. So Pilate is the public representative that we deserve. It actually aligns with what we're like in and of ourselves. He acts on our behalf in our sin in condemning the innocent Jesus, God in the flesh, to death on the cross, to humiliating death and a painful death. Jesus, on the other hand, is the public representative that we need. And he gives himself to us in this way in spite of what we deserve, in spite of the fact that we're all just like Pilate. Jesus doesn't give us some counterfeit fear-driven peace, that Pax Romana, you know, sweeping the earth bringing everything into order through the use of the sword. That's not the way Jesus gives peace, um, where we're all just afraid of doing something wrong. Everybody's afraid of getting out of line. That's not the peace Jesus brings. He doesn't give some generic superficial peace where everybody's just nice to each other. Remember, John is writing his gospel with a view to the theological significance, the divine significance of the life of Christ, who he is and his relationship to the Father, and his gift of the Holy Spirit. He's not just writing a manifesto about practical ways that we can all just get along, practical ways that we can get together, maybe engage in some politics, fix the way politics are done. Maybe we could fix our whole world according to a worldly vision, an exercise of power. This is not a manifesto for that. Jesus sacrifices himself to bring us peace with God. Peace with God. Relational reconciliation with God that is at the heart of all other relationships. The Apostle John says in another of his writings, in his first epistle, he says in uh, 1 John 4.20, if anyone says, I love God, that relationship with God, if anyone says, I love God, hates his brother, he's a liar. That's what John says. That's because our relationship to God is at the heart, it's at the core of our relationships with other people. All our relationships, our whole life, everything we do, our relationship to God is inextricably intertwined with our relationships with other people. Our sin against God manifests itself in our evil toward one another. Our love for God manifests itself in our care for one another. But actually in the world today, We have sort of the opposite problem that that John is describing in his epistle. We would like to eradicate all evil that people are doing to one another. We'd like to introduce and establish kindness and justice between people, sort of that horizontal relationship. We'd like to fix all this, but we want to do it apart from our relationship with God. Uh, I was hanging out with Greg Joins, who's the pastor of our church plant in Corvallis, uh, this week, he said that the secular world wants the kingdom without the king. The secular world wants the kingdom without the king, peace on earth, right? but without reference to to our relationship with God without that being restored that 's impossible that 's impossible you can 't have the kingdom without the king you can 't have true justice you can 't have true peace. You can't have true shalom, the way the Bible describes everything being made right. You can't have the kingdom without the king. You can't truly love one another apart from your relationship with God. If you want true peace, the heart of it, the core of it, will be peace with God, explicitly. Earthly politics, not interested in that. Earthly kingdoms are never interested in that. That's According to the earthly kingdoms and politics, that's never the real problem. The relationship with God is not the real problem. It's irrelevant. We can be nice to each other. We can fix this. But Jesus is the king of another kingdom entirely, and he is utterly fixed on restoring our relationship to God. That's supreme for him. That's what he came to do. Not just make people nice to each other. He came to fix our relationship with God. His politics are not a power play. He isn't playing Pilate's game of one-upsmanship. The politic of Jesus' kingdom is a politic of love, where he lays down his life for his people because he loves God first and foremost, and he loves his neighbor as himself. He loves. He gives himself utterly. It's the politic of self-gift. See how far that will get you in our government, any government. Jesus exchanges his life for cosmic criminals. We've committed cosmic treason. It's such a beautiful picture. Jesus is condemned. Barabbas goes free. That's a beautiful picture. Maybe you thought that was tragic and unfair. Jesus, the good Jesus goes, and here's this evil villain that gets to go free. That, that's tragic. That's unfair. No. This is the gospel. That's what kind of king we have in Jesus. Barabbas is a known criminal. He's a violent robber. The different Gospels describe him with different words. He's an insurrectionist. He's a murderer. He's the kind of man, actually, Pilate, just on his own terms, would normally be afraid of. That's the kind of guy Pilate thinks that he deserves to be up on a cross. He should have been on trial, at least. Someone who threatened Roman power, and he wanted to play that Roman power game. Barabbas is spared while Jesus is condemned. Barabbas, whose name means son of the father. Son of the father. Maybe that sounds like a bad joke or just ironic, but that's the gospel. Because, yes, a hanged man is cursed by God. And Jesus was hanged, and he took our curse for us so that people who deserve to be there go scot-free. We go scot-free, cosmic criminals, usurpers grabbing for power, adopted as sons of the Father, Barabbas. That's who we are. While the true son, the true king, hangs condemned in our place because he gave himself in love, because that's what his power is, to give himself for the life of others. Jesus knew humanity. It exposed the old humanity as bankrupt even as he was allowing the old humanity to kill him. He's the king whose kingdom is not of this world, whose kingly power means giving himself to reconcile you to God. That's what it means. Is that relevant to you? Do you say that Jesus is your king? Does that mean something to you? Does it address the real problems in the world? Is this the king you need? Is this the king you want? Is this the king you'll claim? Everyone who is of the truth will hear his voice. Amen. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we have a, a lot to learn about you and your ways. Your ways are higher than ours. Your thoughts are well beyond our thoughts. Your kingdom is one that, um, that will never fail, that will never falter, that will never be destroyed. Your authority, your Your steadfast love endures forever. So we pray that you would teach us more about Jesus as our king. We pray that you would teach us to ask ourselves, do we say that Jesus is king? Do we say that his kind of politic, his kind of life, his way of being a human is relevant to our lives or not? We pray that you would keep that question before us, that that unlike Pilate, who wanted to have nothing to do with such irrelevant questions. We would see those as the most important questions of our lives, that by your Holy Spirit we would have power to say yes to Jesus, that we would look to Jesus and see his salvation, and we would figure out how to apply it to our lives, how we, how we can see it overthrowing and overturning every aspect of our lives, all the self-centered grabs for power that we make on a daily basis. We pray that you would overthrow those through your kingdom, through your authority. Through your power of love, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.